Sound Lounge. Hello and welcome to the first ever Sound Lounge podcast. We hope everyone is safe and well as the coronavirus lockdown continues and that this episode will keep you entertained and give you a short respite from the worries we're all experiencing. The podcast is designed to keep you informed about all things sync and sonic branding and to make you think about the many ways in which music works with visual media. Episodes will include original interviews with industry experts across music, advertising and related fields and exclusive audio from our popular An Evening with Bob event series, headed up by broadcasting legend Whispering Bob Harris. For this episode, Sound Lounge's James Carnell spoke to head of sync at Domino Recording and Publishing Company's Lyndon Campbell. Their discussion focuses on digital licensing, a sector of the sync world that's grown massively over the past 10 years. Lyndon talks about the frustrating lack of knowledge displayed by many in online media concerning music copyright issues, the glacial response of the music industry to online trends, and the chances of standardised global terminology and contracts emerging in the future. James began by asking Lyndon when digital licensing appeared on Domino's radar. When did you start to see requests come in for purely online usages? So I think it's been going for a really long time, but I became consciously aware of it in 2011, I think. And I know this because I started to want more members of staff and that's when I started <laughs> to become a pain uh, around the office and just sort of needing an extra pair of hands just to process these mm-hmm things and the reason it became noticeable was because the people requesting the music weren't music supervisors so we Mm. were having to spend more time explaining the rights process yeah and that was impacting on how much time we had to do other things so it felt like from that point on that we needed an extra pair of hands to help guide people through that process and and then we needed to overhaul some stuff to speed that process up so Okay. That's me thinking that, but it takes a long time to get that across to sort of more senior members of the company that need to like look at recruitment policies and, you know, trying to afford another mm-hmm. head. The the other thing that I'm yeah. conscious of was that I started to document fashion film because it it became like, it felt like its own business area at that point. And I've done a little bit okay. of backtracking on the origins and development of fashion film. Okay. Is that because that was mostly online? It's mostly online. So it'll be obviously within a catwalk situation or a retail situation. Mm-hmm. And then without the budgets to do TV advertising, it felt like they were naturally using social networks and online websites. Yeah. So it, it began as a look, kind of lookbook. So they yeah. used to have like a, I guess, a magazine format. And mm-hmm. it made sense for them to then shift that online. So as companies like ASOS grew, mm-hmm. then there was a massive blur between is this branded retail or is this cultural editorial like a music magazine? So yeah. I'm really aware of, of there's some really complex questions started to open up and we had to start mm-hmm. working more closely with other teams like our PR team. We needed yeah. to speak to them because I would be like, well, it's ASOS. That's got to be a fee because it's a brand and it's massive. But then they were like, yeah, but it's ASOS and that's a massive audience and we'd like to have that editorial. 
so then we started to refine the questions and how we approached it so there's lots Mm. of different processes that we started to kind of naturally uh develop to try to take into account all the different stakeholders in the deal so that the artist was getting the best deal and if it was promotional versus it not being promotional and also we had to learn how to define what a branded content use is because a lot of them there was a blurring between it's an art film it's a personal project but then it's been paid for by nike so Mm -hmm. like definitely it was like at the turn of the last decade that all of that started to become quite testing i mean you sort of uh answered a bit of the second question there about how (laughs) how how you guys sort of adapted and upheld the value of music so was it sort of trial and error as you go along so to some extent it had to be trial and error because we didn't know what technology was doing until it was already built so it's Mm. not like facebook come to you and go oh by the way we're going to start doing these videos you can put videos on here what do you think about that it sort of Uh happens and then you've got to kind of figure it out so there'd been some heated discussions shall we say and some touch points generally the artists will not want to lose opportunities and they panic and that's where the value argument you sort of find yourself arguing with an artist well there's no money in this and Mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't a content piece about you specifically so I don't see what the promotional value is where it's something that the press team the label have initiated then we are always 100% behind that because that is a promotional use because the actual promo team are involved so we've got some measure of success because they know what they're trying to achieve out of that particular project but you know these these um, platforms were actually never they weren't built for brands they were built for users private users to share information and then they've used brands as a model of trying to gain revenue for those for those platforms And there's never really been a proper open dialogue about brands using social media as a platform for integrated experiential user type content. It's sort of like the model was sort of assuming that there'd be a banner with an ad on it. But Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone really properly thought through, well, what if a brand wants to do a behind the scenes film and post that? And I think that's a massive oversight on the part of these platforms because that could have been another subscription, like a professional subscription that they could have charged or it could be could be some content income that they could have isolated those kinds of users to their own benefit. But, but ultimately, we've constantly had to be on our toes and Domino specifically in the last five years... I probably speak to the digital team more than I speak to any other team in the company. And I think that's a really good indicator that um, in the past, Sync was sort of put with possibly the promo team, probably Mm -hmm. near the A&R team. But now I feel like I sit sit equally between digital and A&R. And A&R being the teams that um, develop and nurture our artists. So obviously a lot of people are now creating more and more online content. You have to, I think there's 31 million YouTube channels, for example. However, in the music industry, for your average content creator, is quite inaccessible for the reasons there. Multiple publishers, multiple interested parties, confusing terminology, digital requests at the bottom of the pile. 
which is forcing people to look for free music or stock music. Do you think the commercial music industry is sleepwalking past increasingly significant income as the world's population moves online? Well, I feel like the world's population moved online about 30, 40 years ago. And I think the whole world has been really slow to realise that. So I don't think it's limited to music business. I think it's, you know, anything that and as we're seeing now with COVID, anything that requires people to leave their homes and go to a gallery space or to go to a venue, I think we're all now waking up to what a big expectation that is of individuals to to sort of make those commitments. And I think, I don't know if this is this is completely anecdotal in my own opinion, but you know, when I was a teenager, I couldn't afford to buy records. I could occasionally starve mm-hmm. myself from my dinner money to buy a cassette. And then everything else I listened to was on the radio, which was free, or I ripped off my friend's older brother's CD collections. And I just mm-hmm. think we're seeing those statistics digitized now. So it's the same behavior, but it's now we can document it and we can see it, you know, before our very eyes. I don't think it's news that young people don't want to spend money on things because they haven't got any money. I think that's always been. But I think, you know, the economy has changed so much now that it's harder for you to get jobs earlier in age. So it's inevitable that technology is really hugely appealing to a wider range of people who wouldn't ordinarily have had access to certain things. So I think it's still really exciting because I think the internet has democratized access to culture, but always the payoff with those sorts of things is that you can't control what people are buying into. And so if they want to sit and make videos about their cat falling over, then that's the way it's got to be. And we can't like tell people, oh, actually, you've got to listen to Beth Gibbons or you've got to listen to, I don't know, uh, John Hopkins, whoever it may be. People will do what they want to mm-hmm. do. And I think... That's the biggest impact, and we've seen that with Spotify, that if mm-hmm. people want to stream a song about sausage rolls, they will. <laughs> and the music industry doesn't quite have that handle hold that it used to have where it would kind of it would sort of almost fake sales for want of a better expression, allegedly. Or it would like mm. they would have lots of there's lots of tactics and little things that they would do. They'd overpress CDs or they would like fill the yeah. shops with stock and it would kind mm-hmm. of it would bump up the figures like now it's kind of like it's just like free game and i think that's full of opportunities but i think you know overall mm-hmm. there's got to be different choices there's got to be different options and so i think in the sense of saying the music industry is sleepwalking i think they were sleepwalking um particularly mm-hmm. when products like apple Napster were emerging and, and the music industry took a classic lock them down approach and like yeah. get the web sheriff out. I think <laughs> that was wrong and I think the music industry should have seen that as an opportunity and invested. But unfortunately mm-hmm. when all that was going on, I was still a student and I really wish that I'd been who I am now then because it would have been really exciting and it would have been great to have yeah. owned that more. But so we mm-hmm. slept walked there, but I don't think the music industry is sleepwalking now. I do think the music industry is very insecure, naturally, and they're not always pioneers, and they like to see... They don't always want to be the guinea pig for things. 
So they will take the lead of um, certain companies to see whether that's the right thing to do. But Mm -hmm. I I genuinely don't think that many of the artists on my roster want their music to be on every single video that's online. And I think what's important is that people recognise that, that there's certain kinds of music Mm. that make sense for certain sorts of usages. I'm not sure it's quite right to expect to to put every single artist's song on every single kind of online thing. I think the art it's down to the artist. If they feel they want their music to be used like that, then that's their choice. And yeah. I think really what's fundamental is, are you in the music industry to be a business person? So are you in the music business? Or are you making music for pleasure? In which case... If you just want your music to be anywhere, then perhaps money isn't the, the main object. Mm-hmm. But if you want to make it a business, then I think you have to be really clever about what you make available and what you don't make available. Yeah. And so I think there has to be choice. So some people want the real deal. Some people don't mind a robot version. <laughs> um, and maybe the same artist is a seminal orchestral score film score creating genius that simultaneously has a music library that simultaneously has a copyright free library that's Mm -hmm. their choice and I think yeah like anything in life it's like I don't think you can have a one-size-fits-all I think you've got different options for different budgets I do think people should take more responsibility about being ignorant about copyright so if they want to use music copyrights then go and flipping do some lessons in music copyright you know Mm -hmm. like if i was going to go and license some photographs for a project i'd probably Mm. go and speak to a lawyer if i wanted to use someone else's film for a project i'd probably speak to a lawyer about that as well and i would get that information Mm -hmm. and it enrages me that people have this assumption that music is that music doesn't seem to be owned by anyone the volume of people that can be involved in making an album, it's like, you know, it can be hundreds of people, hundreds of people. So I just I just think there needs to be a bit more awareness. And I think perhaps if the music industry has slept walked, then it's just been very poor at communicating that information. Mm-hmm. But I can equally understand why it hasn't communicated that information because traditionally it's made a lot of money from people's lack of understanding. So I think the future will rely on the music industry making itself understood and accessible, but that's Mm -hmm. always going to be a really hard thing to do because there are so many different voices involved and also because you've got different Mm -hmm. copyrights and different stakeholders in different territories. So it's I, I think there's definitely a willingness within the music industry. There's a goodwill. Mm-hmm. for people to to make themselves more accessible it's always going to be slow and painful because there are so many people involved in decision making um, yeah. and ultimately it will have to be driven by the artists themselves and they will have to take some responsibility for determining how they want mm-hmm. their music to be monetized and represented because I think when you're inside the music industry, it can be quite frustrating because a lot of the time musicians, they kind of want the end product. They want the money, but they can't really be bothered to think about how it, how they get it or all the different uncertainties that are involved in achieving that. 
-hmm. and it's quite overwhelming for them. And so I think there will be some really strong voices emerge in the next few years where musicians have been able to own their business from from the beginning because of the internet and those voices will be the ones that lead the way about how it should be monetized and protected in the future and I think um, Imogen Heap's a really good example of that. In terms of actually the licensing process I think there seems to be disagreement over certain terminology and whether some of these terms should even exist for example a publisher I was working with recently told me that geolocking, which allegedly locks online usage to the territories included on the license, is impossible. They prefer to call it geotargeting. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I think that these words are indicators for pre-contractual negotiation. So basically it's just a way of sense-checking what exactly the scope of use is. And I think mm-hmm. it's up to the individual how they interpret that. So if I'm doing anything online, I will always assume it's global. Yeah. And then I might ask, is the paid media geolocked to the UK? Meaning that they've gone online, it's global, but the actual kind of... Sponsors. Sponsors. Ads, pop-ups, whatever might be pinging about on your screen... They know what they paid for and usually that will be limited to a particular territory because it will be managed through an aggregator or an agency and they'll literally mm-hmm. just be like, here's a bunch of money just to get this out in Basingstoke and Newcastle on Tees or whatever it is. <laughs> and, they, and, and they'll be really targeted. They will be really targeted now. I mean, I think you only have to go on your Instagram just to, to yeah. suddenly start feeling like someone's following you around. You're like, how oh, it's horrible. Know I just went to that shop. How did they know I just yeah. had a conversation about, I don't know, cheese slices? So that is just something that we ask just to take into account. Okay, so we get that it's online, it's global, but really the reach is only probably going to be Britain. Mm-hmm. And that's just that just sort of gives you a bit of sense of scale. Now, like any negotiation, these are all things that you you have to make a decision. And nothing, you know, you can't go back to someone and say, oh, you said this was only going to be the UK mm-hmm. um, when it's blatantly being promoted in France or Germany. If if on your final contract it says it's a global agreement, that's down to you to make sure that you get the right value for that track and that you, mm-hmm. that, uh, you as a negotiator, like either stick to your guns on whatever point it is you want to make. So... I think that um, if I was going to be specific, I would say that geolocking should put a wall up and that activity should be within the particular territory. Geotargeting mm-hmm. is literally a sort of meaningless term almost that it's just kind of like pointing certain con- content at particular locations. But as there isn't a wall, it, it, can, it can spread. I think anyone entering into yeah. an online deal has to accept that once it's online, it can be recorded, shared, moved beyond borders. Mm-hmm. And I think at the back of your mind, yeah. you just have to always be aware of that. So do you think sort of the rights holder community should work together to establish standard licensing terminology? 
Um, I think there has been an attempt to do that. Certainly, I've tried to do that with uh, the Guild of Music Supervisors, and we did involve a bunch of uh, rights holders in that process. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think like any contract, there's never any standard anything with uh, yeah. anything legal. And, um, you know, I think in the UK, there is there is a sort of unofficial standardization of terminology because it's sort of been driven by a handful of majors and then sort of peppers out to yeah. all the other parts of the, the industry. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you kind of pick up a, an American contract, it's like... You're, you're now in another world of hell because those contracts are <laughs> not easy to read, I don't think. And you do need a lawyer to read that with you because it's just the language is just on another level. It's, I don't think it's plain English. I don't think they make it <laughs> easy for people. So I think it will be incredibly difficult to standardise anything. But I think there's certainly a willingness within rights holders to to learn and knowledge share. And I think maybe geolocking isn't the right example. I think there's other things. There's certain sort of more technical words like DTO, down, download to own, or DTR, download to rent, or MPUs and NVODs. There's like loads of language like that. And that's mm-hmm. where I think we do need to come together because we're yeah. learning on we're learning literally on the job and it's kind of terrifying sometimes not really understanding what any of these things mean mm-hmm. so we've got our own glossary and we add to it virtually every month mm-hmm. and and there's always been like a new so i think 10 years ago maybe a bit longer we were talking about pre-rolls mm-hmm. and now i haven't used the word pre-roll for about five or six years <laughs> and it's more VOD, DTO, DTR are these all these kind of like acronyms. Yeah. And they're all kind of quite scary. So I don't just work in UK deals, I work internationally. And that's where yeah. it starts to get quite fun because there's all sorts of like they have different ways of describing things. So mm-hmm. as soon as we learn a new a new phrase, we just wang it in our glossary. And we just hope that that gets mm-hmm. shared around. But I mean, there probably should at some point be some sort of centralization. But who would own that? I think it should be owned by the rights holders. Um, but it's very difficult for mm-hmm. us to kind of set policies and structures because we are in competition. So it probably would need to be a partnership with the Guild of Supervisors or some kind of uh, meeting of minds within ad agencies as well so maybe like advertising i would suggest that it would be advertising community themselves that should be setting the glossaries for the media that they're using and mm-hmm. then that should be adopted by uh, the music industry and music supervisors because that's where the language is coming from I don't personally think it makes sense for the music industry to necessarily define the words that are coming from media, but we will give our interpretation. So if someone says to me, this is going to be geolocked to the UK, I feel a lot more confident than if someone says it's geotargeted. Uh-huh. Um, but whether another rights holder chooses to ignore that and just assume that it means global online use, unlimited, mm-hmm. that's, their, that's absolutely their their right of negotiation okay so yeah in terms of that what other issues do you think there are with digital licensing if any well i think the main issue with digital licensing is ignorance and 
constantly mm-hmm. being contacted by people who are not specialists in music licensing yeah and it puts a huge drain on our resources and mm. it's hugely frustrating and you kind of feel like you know what why is there no resource that people can go to first to understand that process and as a rights holder you can be dealing with very experienced music supervisors as well and you feel like you're asking the same questions over and over and over but they make you feel like you're the only person that's ever asked those questions and they're very basic questions you know like who is the brand what is the content can we see the video what's going on in the video so I think there needs to be an understanding that online requires more information than ever because it's got the potential to go global and that has a huge impact on different stakeholders because music rights are so territorial so if I do a deal in the UK that's going to cover the world I have to make sure that I've negotiated the best possible deal because it's taking away the mandates of our exclusive sub-publishers Um, of my colleagues that work in different territories and all the questions we ask are in order to make sure that our artists are fully informed and I think I I don't see how that should be any different just because it's online it shouldn't be any different from any other process obviously the second problem with digital is uh, beyond the lack of understanding of the rights process is timing and so Mm -hmm everyone expects everything to be done immediately but it's the same process we still have to investigate verify that we own something seek permission Mm -hmm. uh, negotiate the terms raise a contract issue an invoice Um, and that process it can be as quick or as slow as you want it to be but that process has to be there and every single rights holder will have um, a, a different level of um, efficiency in in all of those mm-hmm. different processes and and I think it needs to be understood that you know for certain types of licensing it's just never going to be a fast process and that's fine and there is an ecosystem with that and that's why you can charge a lot of money for certain usages and less money for other usages and so mm-hmm. it would be great if there was a way of digitizing certain elements of those processes but enabling rights holders to retain their control because Mm. I mean I can't speak for rights holders who don't have consent requirements but as Domino we consult every single deal we consult with our artists to to make sure that they're happy yeah Um, morally I think that's the right thing to do but Mm. that can be very difficult to explain to someone when they've got an hour to clear something Um, And they tend to hold it against you. And I think there needs to be better understanding that, well, that's why libraries exist. Well, that's why certain Mm -hmm. types of copyright-free... I don't really understand how copyright-free exists because copyright exists in statute. So I've never really understood that as a concept. (laughs) But but certainly, you know, I just think there has to be like a menu. People have to understand this like a, you know, you have your express snacks, you've got your, you know, um, I don't know, your gastronomic rarities it's just to me it's exactly the same with music there's going to be certain things that just you know it's got you've got to you've got to wait for it to be prepared and then when it works Mm -hmm. it's absolutely astounding and everyone's like oh my god that's the best thing ever do you think we'll end up seeing blanket digital licenses introduced and where are we heading 
as an industry? I think we'll have to look at America to lead that because I think the UK is comfortable with blanket agreements under for, for television use. Um, I think blanket agreements work on a territory by territory basis. So if you look at the way BBC, ITV, Channel 4 operate under their blanket agreements, that also places a huge weight of responsibility on the collection societies to do their job properly. And that's something yeah. that is probably a separate debate um, <laughs> about whether they are able to do that or not. I mean, they would say that they yeah. process a huge amount of payments and that they, you know, they they, they do, they, they process a heck mm. of a lot, but maybe they should be they processing do, a heck yeah. of a lot more. And I think there's always been a priority... <laughs> there's always been a priority to process the performance royalties for bigger acts where they know the money is and i think anything that brings in revenue under five pounds has just been pretty much swept to one side now if you're an independent artist you're mm. probably going to be earning less than five pounds on a lot of stuff um and i think my frustration is that we're now in an era of micro licensing we're in an era of micro money and all of those micro amounts add up. So if you look at Spotify, you see like if each play earns not point not one whatever the micro income is. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Multiply that by a significant enough amount of use, and it starts to really earn. And I think that yeah. is a real sticking point for um, collection societies, and they really need to gear up on their micro collections. And I think once mm -hmm. that's nailed, then we will probably move towards a world of digital licensing. We already are with mm -hmm. um, YouTube, Instagram. There's already a certain element of that coming in. Yeah. Um, I think when you look at things like Twitch, it's been incredibly slow because last year I did a, I held a Twitch conference. Uh, I think there's about five people in the audience and most people in the music industry that I spoke to said they didn't know what Twitch was, which I found really shocking because mm -hmm. it was like the fourth largest live streaming platform in the world and it had been going for about 11 wow. years. So it wasn't new. And, you know, I think mm -hmm. that for me just emphasised how blinkered um, the music industry and artists can be. They don't really, yeah. they're kind of in their own bubble. They kind of want someone else to sort it out. Um, so I think for digital blanket licenses to come in place, there needs to be a real understanding that if once you've ticked that box, that's it. You won't be getting the sync revenue that you've been dreaming of. You won't know what mm -hmm. the difference is between a big sync or a little sync. It will all be the same. Mm -hmm. And the reality is right now that all of the deals we do are digital and every now and then we'll be lucky and there'll be, a, there'll be a big TV ad. All of the TV broadcast, meaning like your Netflix shows and your Amazon shows and all that kind of, sort of Apple stuff that everyone's sort of talking about right now, those are already part of a blanket system in the UK. And then for the US and the rest of the world, it has to be licensed. And that's brought in a huge amount of income to the UK that mm -hmm. didn't exist before. So I think it would be really important to understand that if we move to a global digital blanket license, that you would not be seeing those advances anymore. And those advances are already too low, in my opinion. So yeah. I think that will really stall any conversation about digital blanket licenses. And I think another point is that user-generated content isn't that 
attractive to a lot of artists that are creative and really most artists just want the kind of sexy tv shows or they want a massive tv ad and um i think if we go down the digital blanket license route the artist's control will become less and Mm -hmm. they won't they won't have any control over pitching music into a tv show if there's just one blanket agreement then they can just use anything then they can just use anything yeah but then just Mm -hmm. being devil's advocate you know we've always had the blanket agreement (laughs) in the uk and there are music supervisors that uh have sort of you know established themselves within the blanket agreement community so it's not necessarily the end of the world but it's just going to make it less likely that you could have any control over the licenses or revenue that you would get from those kinds of uses. So I think, I don't think that's going to happen soon, but I Mm. think at the same time as saying that it is already unofficially happening. So every music company uses a digital service provider to aggregate all their, all of the communications of their music to different platforms. And all it would take is for that, DSP to have a checkbox which says do you want it to sync to Amazon and then you click that box and that's it Amazon can use your music in whatever they choose to at a set fee and you wouldn't have any control over it and I think that's what I've always been scared of and that's why I sit so close to our digital team and they check everything with me because I'm just keeping my eyes peeled for that day when these little sneaky checkboxes come in but I'm still quite hopeful that ultimately there is a strong connection between music supervisors, rights holders and creators of content. And there's still a business that's that's quite robust and I've never been so busy. So I'm not quite mm. panicking just yet, but yeah, <laughs> I think it's definitely something that needs to be discussed. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Lyndon for talking to us and thank you for listening. This episode's discussions will also be covered in a series of blogs on the Sound Lounge website, which you can find at soundlounge.co.uk forward slash blog. Our recordings of the Evening with Bob events will be released soon, starting with the launch event in which Bob spoke to Adam and Eve DDB's Les Bennett and Tara Austin from Kindred. Keep your eyes open on our social media channels for those. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to james at soundlounge.co.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. See you next time. Sound Lounge.